Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Andrew Cutrafello, the author of All for Nothing, Hamlet's Negativity. Andrew Cutrafello is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola University in Chicago. He's the author of Continental Philosophy, A Contemporary Introduction, and other books. Andrew Cutrafello, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me here today, Chris. Now, your book, All for Nothing, Hamlet's Negativity, is part of the MIT Press's Short Circuit series. Now, could you explain what that series is trying to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a series edited by uh, Slavoj Žižek, Vladimir Alenka Zupancic, and what they say is that they're looking for a practice of reading that confronts a classic text, an author, or some concept with its own hidden presuppositions. And... Um, what I'm doing is I'm looking not so much at the hidden presuppositions of Shakespeare's play, but more the hidden presuppositions of the texts of philosophers who have um, talked about Hamlet or fought with Hamlet, drawn on Hamlet in some way. They've um, been very influenced by Hamlet, but they haven't always made explicit the ways in which that works. So what ends up happening is... Uh, Hamlet is treated as an example, and I'm trying to suggest that the history of modern philosophy is very much structured in response to certain questions that Hamlet is the first to really represent, so that it's really a question of sort of trying to show the degree to which modern philosophy is um, inspired by Hamlet. Which is really pretty cool when you think about it, because Shakespeare or as I've met other people say, whoever pretended to be Shakespeare might not have had much background in philosophy. And for one character to draw that much interest from modern philosophers, what is it about Hamlet that philosophers are finding so interesting and that you found interesting enough to spend time talking about him? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, and I think that um, if we wonder, right, why Hamlet rather than so many other characters from literature, um, even from that period, say Don Quixote, who I think is important in certain ways, it would be interesting to do a study of the philosophical reception of Don Quixote or other early modern works, um, other Shakespeare characters, why not Lear, why not Macbeth, why not Lady Macbeth, Cleopatra? Uh, I think Hamlet is the key figure in part because of the nature of his soliloquies. Um, he is the soliloquizing character par excellence. is more soliloquy lines than any other Shakespeare play, and his own reflections, both in soliloquy and in conversation with the other characters, are just so philosophical. The other thing that I would say is that they're philosophical in a specific way. Um, obviously, I think it has something to do with the concept of negativity. And um, I think that what philosophers have been successively drawn to are just different aspects of that negativity. So when you're saying negativity, I mean, when I, when I guess we think about modern terms, modern, perhaps non-philosophical terms, we're thinking of somebody who maybe is depressed, maybe not happy about situations, maybe is seeing the glass half empty. Uh, I would assume that's kind of a, a kind of base level reading of negativity. So could you take that a little bit deeper? When philosophers talk about negativity, what kind of qualities are they talking about? I think that base level is really important because I do think that our everyday understanding in terms of the things you're mentioning here, pessimism, um, melancholy, um, just not being a positive person, 
these things really are at the core. Um, philosophically, they're also connected to issues about uh, the nature of negation um, and um, the nature of nihilism. What we mean when we think about um, nihilism as a philosophical problem. Of course, if Hamlet has any signature line, it's to be or not to be, that is the question. And um, it's the not to be that is the focus of that question. And the fact that Hamlet is sitting there, standing there, um, asking about the sense of what it means not to be and whether not being might be more desirable than being. On the one hand, that's a question that's very concrete and personal and existential. And on the other hand, it's remarkably abstract and philosophical, deploying these concepts of being and non-being. And I think it's sort of the fusion of those two things that can make Hamlet resonate both for average theater goers and readers and for philosophers. So is one of the issues around this question of being or not being that we talk about in that soliloquy, the fact that in Hamlet, I mean, early on, the whole mainspring of the plot begins with Hamlet's encounter with his dead father. So does that encounter color how Hamlet sees this question of being or non-being simply because he's already met somebody who he knows is dead? I think that's right. Absolutely. You know, there's a funny sort of a tension um, between the fact that in that to be or not to be soliloquy, Hamlet speaks of the undiscovered country from who is born no traveler returns. And yet he's already seen the ghost of his father, so he has an, an instance of a traveler returning. And um, critics, of course, try to reconcile these two passages. I think one of the things that you could say is that Hamlet is perplexed about death from the very beginning of the play, even before he finds out that uh, his uncle has killed his father. He's upset about the fact that his mother has remarried too hastily. And he tells Horatio that um, the proper amount of time that should have passed between the funeral and the wedding hasn't taken place. He says, thrift, thrift Horatio. The funeral baked meats did coldly furnish the wedding tables. And throughout the play, he progressively shortens the amount of time that he says has passed since his father died. So he's clearly um, in mourning, and that colors everything throughout the play, including his relationship to his own death. Uh, you mentioned that he's confused about death, and this gets into one of the issues of the book, is this whole question of melancholy. Now, traditionally, Hamlet is referred to as the melancholy Dane or the melancholy prince, but if we think about melancholy today as just kind of feeling a little blue, melancholy m meant something different during Shakespeare's time and really through, I want to say, the centuries in continental philosophy. Could you talk about the, what that melancholy meant and to what degree Hamlet as a character begins to question the ghost simply because he is melancholic? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Right, there is this whole history of uh, thinking in terms of the four bodily humors and the uh, different sort of character types associated with them. Um, and so melancholy was one of these four humors, the others being uh, blood and phlegm and... Um, See, melancholy, blood, phlegm, and bile. 
Um, right. So melancholy is black bile. And Aristotle actually even talks about a connection between people who are melancholy and um, and their and people who are interested in philosophy, in the arts. Um, there's this long-standing idea that stretches from Aristotle throughout um, the Middle Ages up to the Renaissance that people who are melancholy um, are genial in a certain way. They have a certain kind of uh, genius, which is understood on the one hand as a special spiritual faculty, and on the other hand as a kind of uh, pathological condition. And one of the worries about melancholy is that um, it, it's associated with black magic. But some of the Renaissance thinkers like Ficino emphasize the good magic that's associated with it. People who are prone to melancholy can have visitations with spirits. So the fact that Hamlet is temperamentally melancholy marks him during the Renaissance as someone who could actually be visited by a ghost. You know, finally, I want to talk a little bit about uh, another facet of Hamlet that people may know about is that he uh, wavers a little bit. I mean, the, there's a long stretch, and I know there's been a discussion both now in philosophy and in drama, why it takes him so long to get around to do these things. And there are certainly some questions of political philosophy, or, well, all sorts of questions. This is his uncle. He'd be killing blood. From a from a political point of view, I mean, he's if he's killing the king, he's killing allegedly you know, God's representative on earth, so that could damn him forever. Uh, what are the issues from philosophy that when they look at Hamlet, why, I mean, it's a particular reason philosophers think Hamlet took so long to finally take his revenge. Yeah, this is a really fascinating issue, both in uh, philosophy and in the history of Shakespeare criticism. Uh, up until the late 18th century, no one really thought that Hamlet inordinately delayed. But um, at a certain point, they started to think that he did, and they sought psychological explanations for this. And this really led to a whole vast literature that eventually culminated in Freud's conception of uh, the Oedipus complex as providing an explanation for why Hamlet is supposed to delay. But another feature of this is that philosophers... Um, beginning in the 19th century, started to take Hamlet as a figure of the bad revolutionary, the one who can't quite um, bring things to a head. One of the things that I've tried to bring out in my book is that there's a counter tradition as well, which represents Hamlet not so much as delaying as um, tarrying. Um, tarrying is a term that's very important in Shakespeare, and it means something like biding one's time. Hamlet bides his time for strategic reasons. And I think if we look at that aspect of the play, it brings out something that um, gets missed by the other delaying interpretation. Andrew Cutrafalo, the author of All for Nothing, Hamlet's Negativity, part of the MIT Press's Short Circuit series. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks so much for having me here, Chris. It's been fun talking to you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, the MIT Press is on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.